Welcome back to Doxology Matters, where we desire to help you think deeply about God's Word as you praise Him. And today, uh, gentlemen, is our final chapter in this amazing book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. And today's chapter is on glorification. And we have back with us uh, Pastor Kevin and Pastor Jeff. Fellas, here we made it to the end of the book. Can you believe it? I'm excited. I am too. What a book. Yeah, what a great book. Uh, how many times have you read the book? This is two for me. Two? Too many to count. Yeah. Okay, well, well, I'm number one. So there you go. You're, uh, i got a ways to go to catch up with you. Uh, so explain glorif- what glorification is, and why is it at the end of application? Well, it... Murray opens the chapter with this way, and I'll just let him have the words. Glorification is the final phase of the application of redemption. It is that which brings to completion the process which begins in effectual calling. Indeed, it is the completion of the whole process of redemption. He goes on to write, For glorification means the attainment of the goal to which the elect of God were predestinated in the eternal purpose of the Father, and it involves the consummation of the redemption secured and procured by the vicarious work of Christ. So, uh, you've got this whole redemption accomplished and applied, this order of application, and glorification is like the unending exclamation point on the process. So when does, it, when does glorification happen? So one of the things I appreciate about and have learned so much from Murray's presentation in this chapter is I used to be very wrong. I thought glorification was when the believer's soul was in heaven. But Murray argues, and I think quite succinctly and quite effectively, that glorification is actually a universal event for all of God's people to experience at the same time in the consummation of the kingdom of the Son. Yeah, I've read that. I was like, whoa. Whoa, right? Like, So this has changed the way I think about heaven. It's changed the way I think about like what happens at death. I've often thought that somebody should write a small book for the Christian uh, to read to say, you know, what are my questions about death? What does the Bible really say about death? And Murray goes, you know, headlong into this idea that death is the final enemy. And this is exactly what Paul's saying, that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And I think... As a, as a young Bible-believing Christian in college and coming out of college, I thought that that was really talking about what happened in the historical atoning sacrifice of Jesus and the event of the crucifixion. And what Murray's saying is that event gives birth to this, this culminating reality that death itself will be finished one day and there will be no more death, which the Apostle John promises in the book of Revelation. Well, creation will not grow any longer. Mm-mm. Yeah, Romans 8. It's not just the effects of sin in us that will be dealt with finally and forever, but also the effects of sin in the world. So as I was recently preaching through the end of Revelation, I wrestled with this question, what is heaven like? And in order to kind of summarize, I I gave my listeners two points. Number one, um, uh, heaven is the relationship with God that you always knew was possible. It's a perfect relationship with God. And when I've talked about heaven, I, I clarified, I'm not just meaning 
the the time when your body and your soul are apart. It's interesting as Paul talks about death, he, he essentially says, I, I have three descending preferences. Number one, I wish I could skip it and go straight to the resurrected body, new heavens, new earth. That's what I want, but it doesn't look like I'm going to get that. So if I can't have that, I'd rather depart and be with the Lord. I know it means I'm going to experience this disembodied season where my body's in the ground, my soul's with the Lord. But okay, if I can't have new heavens, new earth now, that's what I want. He looks around, he says, I don't think I'm going to get that. So he says, if that's not the case, then you know what? I'm going to keep glorifying Christ where I'm at. Um, and so he kind of gives this uh, preference. So as I talked about heaven, I said, okay, it's a perfect relationship with God, the one you always knew was possible, and it's a perfect rest from sin. Murray says sin and all its consequences, which I think is helpful. One of the uh, theologians that helped me think about my questions about heaven is, uh, I believe it was, it was either Nancy Guthrie or Melissa Kruger. Uh, yep, uh, great theologians, and um, they too have some wonderful podcasts, um, you, uh, you know, partner well with Doxology Matters. Uh, but they pose the question this way, when you have a question about heaven, uh, think, think about it this way, can I trust God with this? Because I start to think about, well, what about this, and what about that, and what about this, and what about that, and can I trust God that his reality of heaven is better than whatever imagination I could come up with? And the answer to that is, is yes. Well, is that uh, your question, or is that a question that you gave? From- That's the question that they encourage us to ask. So, uh, and again, I can't remember if it was Nancy Guthrie or Melissa Kruger, but one of them, that's how they put it, you know. And they were talking to, um, if I remember right, they were talking to a woman who had questions about her husband who had passed away, and they were wrestling with hard questions. And uh, so the, the comfort to them as a believer was, can I trust God with this? Yes. Yes, I can. Whoa. Which should be a great reminder to our listener that women are theologians. I was going to say. And there are many excellent theologians. And in our generation, I think we're seeing more and more of them emerge uh, fully, and, and they should be validated. Hey, man, did that bring about? Yeah, right. Ladies, right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, pastors often say uh, at funerals, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is this true, and what is, if so, what is your spiritual or scriptural proof text? So Jeff did a great job alluding to uh, what's happening in Second Corinthians 5. He did. Uh, and, and it's the idea... And I love this because we know, and I think a lot of churches say, like, Paul is a tent maker, right? So so one of his earthly jobs, in addition to being a preacher and a missionary and, and all those things, apostle to the Gentiles, is that he made tents. And that was one of the ways he sourced his income. Well, when he deals with the imagery in Second Corinthians 5, he basically refers to our physical body as temporary dwellings temporary tents. I mean, he's an expert on this, right? He knows what it is to live in a tent. This is more substantial than like camping and not as eloquent and beautiful as say the tabernacle in Israel's history was. So go between what L.L. Bean can produce and uh, what uh, Moses uh, led the people of God to develop in in the tabernacle according to the word of God. And so 
you know, our bodies are real. And Murray does a great job warning us of uh, the, the infiltration of Gnosticism. It's just a philosophical, theological term to refer to the idea that the spiritual reality is true and that the earthly, physical matter reality is corrupted, corroded, or, or sometimes in some versions just evil. And so you need to escape the physical and get into the spiritual. Uh, you'll see this, what I call modern uh, Gnosticism in movies like Avatar, right? It's a beautiful movie, compelling script, unbelievable cinematography and, and the beauty of the land that they create. But one of the fundamental expectations is that the machines are bad and that the soil of the earth and that the living things, that's real, and so they're pitting kind of the tools and machines of men against the natural creation and almost deifying the natural creation. Well, in ancient Gnosticism, you would say the creation is bad and the invisible world, the spiritual world, I'm putting that in air quotes, that's the thing that's important. And the Bible has none of this. The Bible teaches emphatically that, that ontologically, in terms of our being, right, we are human beings, that we are body and soul, that there are two elements, two aspects that make one human person. And so in that 2 Corinthians 5, what Paul's saying is that it is an unnatural state for a soul to be away from a body. That's not what God has designed permanently. It's a temporary necessity until the fulfillment of the age. So when a believer dies, their soul is separated from their body. And Murray quotes, and I'll, I'll give it to you. I, I previewed it in the last episode. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Here's the answer. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. And this is the weight of something I think we gloss over real quickly. And that is that it's a singular event that encompasses the whole church. You see that not only in 2 Corinthians 5, but also in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, is it chapter 4, verses 13 and 14? I should know. Uh, it was on the cover of my dad's, uh, for my dad's uh, memorial service, we put that scripture that, that we do not groan in grief uh, like those who are without hope. Why? Because the Lord's going to return, and some are going to be even taken up into the air, still alive. I think that's what Paul's wish was in the first category Jeff gave us. And the dead in Christ will also rise. And that's the third category, that we will live forever with Christ on that day of judgment, that great and terrible day, the final day, the last day. So if the dead in Christ rise, is that just their physical body? Their bodies. Oh, yeah. Their glorified bodies, which are physical, but they're more than physical, right? Just as Jesus' resurrected body, I was just preaching on this part um, in our church, the Jesus' glorified body somehow bears the scars of the crucifixion 
that glorified body can eat food, but locked doors do not offer difficulty for his glorified body. So you want to read Luke 24 and figure out all that? It's there, and that's where we go, yeah, I can trust God with that. I can trust God with how that works. Um, And so that's what happens to the believer. Their soul instantaneously goes to heaven, and they're with God. Uh, But it's what Paul calls an unnatural state. And there will be a day where the saints of heaven, the bodies on earth, they collide. And we will be given, uh, what's the the passage? They will all be changed. Not all of them will die, but they'll all be changed in the twinkling of an eye and at the trumpet sound. So, yeah, you think we'll see that side? You think it'll just? I think we'll see it. I think uh, the what's the promise in the beginning of Acts? The disciples, the apostles, are given two angels at Jesus's ascension, and they're like, uh, "Hey, what are you guys doing?" And they're like, uh, "We're watching Jesus go." And they're like, "Don't worry." He will return in the same way that he departed. And uh, he departed in full view of them. He's going to return in full view of them. And there's a million things we probably don't know about this moment. But that is universal, right? Everyone. This is a singular event for human history. And all the believers are going to be excited. And all the non-believers are going to be at last condemned. I mean, that's not a good news. It's good news for us. Have faith. Put your faith in Christ. That's real. But that's part of the challenge of of this event of glorification. Jesus will be vindicated as the one true way to eternal life. Every knee will bow. Yeah, every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord of Philippians 2. Yeah. That day is coming, and it will happen. It will be real. It will be universal for the people of earth. And it will be it, it will be physical, yeah, not not just spiritual. To go back to the point you were making yes. earlier about the dangers of Gnosticism and thinking, oh, glorification is just a spiritual thing. No, no, it's 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 physical. Just as the resurrection of Christ it, was physical. Yes, exactly, exactly. He, yeah, he, it wasn't a spiritual resurrection for him. Yeah. Well, that's sobering to think about those that are not not be. Believing on the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, they are not saved. They will get what they want, right? There won't be anybody in hell who says, I do not deserve this. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, there won't be anybody in heaven who proudly thinks, of course I deserve this. Exactly. We have very much commercialized heaven and hell. In our culture, heaven is the good place where good people go, says our culture. It's wrong, but that's what they say. And hell, we reserve hell for like Hitler, Al Capone. Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Just real pure evil. And uh, and that's not what the God standard says. Yeah. It's not what the Bible is teaching us. The warnings are everywhere. Yeah, it's hard word, but it's true. Be ye therefore holy as your heavenly Father's holy. Yeah, First Peter. So one of the things uh, that Murray does is in this chapter, uh, bottom 187 in my version, 
Murray says this, he says, glorification then is the instantaneous change that will take place for the whole company of the redeemed when Christ will come again the second time without sin unto salvation and will descend from heaven with the shout of triumph over, I love this phrase, the enemy. There will never again be a death. When the trumpet sounds and the day of judgment comes, no more death. And it's at that moment that the church universal can sing, there's no sting in death. Where's your victory? Death, death no longer exists. I long for that day. It's helpful when we when we read our, our Bibles and you get through, okay, Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation of the world and Genesis 3 and the awful entrance of sin and then Genesis 4 um, and, and Cain and Abel, but you read even early on in Genesis of the genealogies and the repeated phrase, and he died. And it's this sobering kind of uh, reminder that death echoes through the whole Bible and the whole story of the people of God is marked by death, but one day no more will be. Um, and so uh, we have, at Catalyst, we've sung um, a, a, a song, uh, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, which walks you through the mystery of redemption, but the, at, towards the end, the, you, there's a line, um, uh, uh, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Um, and this reminder that we will be a resurrected people, that our glorification is sure. And it's a helpful and fitting conclusion to the redemption accomplished and applied. Yeah, that's a beautiful hymn written by Matt Boswell, who is a Southern Seminary prof in the uh, School of Worship. He also is a pastor of the Trails Church, I believe, in Texas. Great, great songwriter. He works with the Gettys on some of... He is now performances and hymns and stuff too. Yeah, right? him and Matt Papa. They just wrote a new song, a Psalm One Fifty, Praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. It is really amazing. We're doing it for our Christmas concert. Nice. It's really great. Yeah, really great. Well, Kevin, I tell you, both you and Jeff, the questions that I have could be asked maybe in a slightly different way, but they hit all these points that you have just mm-hmm. hit. So <laughs> you just kind of <laughs> uh, rang out my questions there. Uh, the last note I had down there is for the believer, at that point, we're done with sin, right? Yes. So your soul uh, in that final estate, uh, the confessional writers say, at their death, their souls made perfect in holiness. And how I long for that day. But it's a disembodied holiness. We were made by God to worship with our whole selves. So there'll still be a yearning. There'll still be a how long, not because their body of sin and they need rescuing that's happened, but because they are waiting for the day of resurrection and the glorification of the whole earth. But there's also more to this than just individual personal glorification or corporate, the whole church glorification. It's also creation itself. I really, Murray does just such a masterful job. This is kind of the beginning of page 190 on my version. His second point under the subheading says, The glorification of believers is associated and bound up with the renewal of creation. 
It is not only believers who are delivered from the bondage of corruption, but the creation itself also. The idea comes right out of Romans 8, where all creation groans. Why? Because that was part of the curse and fall of Adam and Eve, is that the thorns and the thistles are going to make you work harder. The pain of childbearing increase. Like, there are these difficulties that are designed for sanctification, and they're going to be magnified. They're going to be increased. And there'll be a day when that increase is completely removed. There'll be no more thorns and thistles in creation because it'll be fully restored. It's just as the Christmas hymn reminds us that he comes to bring um, uh, redemption and salvation as far as the curse is found. Yeah. Yeah, that's joy to the world. There it is, yep. Yeah. So Second Peter 3, verse 13, what we see here is Peter associating that cosmic regeneration. I, can you, I mean, mm-hmm. what a phrase. Yeah. Cosmic regeneration. It's not just inward that we need this. It's not just in human bodies that we need this. There'll be no more cancer. No more cancer in created pets and animals. No, like everything will be holy. Water, holy. Dirt, holy. Trees, holy. No more curse. No more corruption no more destruction everything made new everything made right it's not just a spiritual thing it is a very earthly and spiritual thing that will take place wow how exciting is that gonna be and all of that tied up i think it's important to remember with the presence of christ Piper, in one of his sermons, I believe, asks the sort of penetrating question, would you want heaven and all of its benefits if Jesus wasn't there? Yeah, I heard him And the answer is no. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Resoundingly no. Yeah, yeah. You think anybody would say yes? Well, we would be tempted to. Yeah. Do I want the absence of cancer? Yes. (laughs) Do I want the presence of peace? Yes. Would I want all of those things if Jesus wasn't there? Well, that's a false question. It is. It's a false dilemma. Right. But it points at a good heart inspection right yeah it does yeah so for the listener i i would encourage you to to refresh your heart and your soul with those truths that that glorification is real it is coming it is unstoppable it is sure and certain um because christ is coming and christ is sure and the resurrection will be yours oh amen kevin do you have any final word on this chapter i'll give it to murray When we think of glorification, then, it is no narrow perspective that we entertain. It is a renewed cosmos, new heavens, and new earth that we must think of as the context of the believer's glory, a cosmos delivered from all of the consequences of sin, in which there'll be no more curse, but also in which righteousness will have complete possession and undisturbed habitation. It's not just the removal of sin. It's the indwelling habitat of righteousness, 
Oh, how I long to live in that place. Yeah, same. Very much so. Yeah. I think it's fitting to conclude this uh, this book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, by the words that uh, J.S. Bach uh, wrote nearly on every piece. He was a devoted Christian. Uh, he wrote, To God be the glory. To God alone be the glory. We're so thankful for God's goodness to us and salvation. And uh, those words just seem to fall short, don't they? God has been so good. So praise be to God for His holy word and the gospel. Thank you for joining us on this journey of uh, studying the order of salvation and God's goodness. Be blessed. Thanks for listening.